Hey friend, welcome to another episode of the Love Offering Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Adams, and today's guest is Emily P. Freeman. Emily is on the show today chatting about a fresh way of practicing familiar but often forgotten advice. Simply do the next right thing. Adults make 35,000 decisions every single day, and it is time that we clear the decision-making clutter, quiet the fears of choosing wrong, and get the courage to finally decide. In this episode, Emily also shares her writing journey and lessons that she has learned along the way. Her message is hope-filled, and I believe after listening, you will be better equipped to determine your next right thing. Y'all, just a little bit of a forewarning. Technology was not working in our favor in this episode. I thought it was during the interview. Everything Emily did was phenomenal, and so I didn't want to make her re-record, and I also don't want you to miss this episode because it is so good, but just to warn you ahead of time, there are a few times that it sounds like I'm interrupting Emily. I promise that I did not. She ends her last couple words of her comments, and I go ahead and start the next question, and then there's a couple times that it sounds like I'm laughing before she even tells the joke. For whatever reason, our technology was not in sync, but it does not distract you from the message that Emily is giving. And so I do want to go ahead and apologize and ask for your forgiveness and for your grace, but I also know you are going to love this episode and all Emily has to share. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Miss Emily P. Freeman. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the Love Offering Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Well, hey, Rachel. It's so great to be here. You are dedicated to helping create space for souls to breathe so they can discern their next right thing in love. And you say decision fatigue is a real thing. And in fact, adults make over 35,000 decisions every day. And I think this just makes me tired just thinking about that. (laughs) But, you know, think over my days, I 100% agree with that. So would you share why it is so important for you or why it was so important for you to come to a solution for this decision fatigue? It's a great question. And I think it's one of those things where decision making, unlike, you know, homework or certain seasons of life, decision-making is something that we will never grow out of. So it doesn't matter if you're a toddler or if you are 90 years old, we always are going to have choices and decisions to make. And so as I've paid attention to my own life, the life of those in my family, friends, people who I love, I just realized, and I'm sure, you know, this is not a new idea, but I've realized how when we have an unmade decision, it holds a lot of power. And that power can be um, overwhelming when that decision continues to be unmade and then more decisions pile on top of it. And we have this pervasive feeling of overwhelm because there's just so many things I have to decide. And I don't, you know, and and I think that we can all kind of relate to that. Um, And so this idea of paying attention to not only, you know, I think everybody wants to make quote unquote good decisions. You know, we want to make good decisions, but. I've also paid attention to making good decisions is not just about um, what decisions we make, but it's also about how we make those decisions and the process of decision-making. And that right there has become a fascinating study for me. Mm, Yes. So yes, I agree. I mean, it is important. So you've discovered a fresh way of practicing familiar, but often forgotten advice, which is simply do the next right thing. So how has putting this advice to practice 
helped you personally? You know, I'm one of those people who it's hard for me when I have a lot going on. I almost feel like I'm standing in the middle of a room and I see something that needs to be done and it doesn't have to be a big thing. I'm not talking like lifetime vocational decisions. Now when those come in, it gets even more difficult, but I'll, it's like I stand in the middle of the room and I'll look and I'll start going one way, but then I get distracted by all the other things that need doing. And so sometimes um, it, it can become, whether it's, you know, the schedule of my day or whether it's, you know, looking at my life as a whole, um, it almost feels like I'm spinning in the middle of the room, kind of looking at all the things that need doing, but I can't quite land on one. It reminds me of when my kids were in preschool and like they finally got some time during the day where they weren't underfoot and I would take them to preschool, drop them off at nine and I didn't have to pick them up till one. And those first few weeks of them going to preschool, I'd get home at like nine 15 and I would stand in my house and be like, okay, here, here it is. It's here. I've got, I've got some time. (laughs) And let me tell you how many times I wasted my mornings because I couldn't decide Mm -hmm. what to do. And I was so, had so much pressure because I wanted to do like the just right, perfect thing that I was going to be so happy I did. And I never could land on it. Um, and I found that I, it actually, um, if I just chose something, the act of choosing something and doing it was so much more satisfying and it doesn't even matter what it was. It's just that I chose one thing and I just did the next thing that made sense in that moment rather than trying to pick the perfect thing that would, you know, really just make my time worth it. And I mean, that feeling, though my kids are older now, I still experience that feeling a lot. And, and I think this practice of doing just the next right thing um, is something that has been such a, a friend to me because it's helped me not have to look at all of the things that need doing or all of the decisions that need to be made, but just, okay, what is, when I feel super overwhelmed or anxious, I'll just ask myself, well, what is my next right thing right now? And sometimes Rachel, it is put your shoes on or refill the coffee. You know, it is, it can be so simple, but then you get to ask yourself the next question again. And that has been, it keeps you from being paralyzed. I mean, yeah. In in activity. And I was just thinking, I think when my kids first went back to school um, or went to school for the first time, I think I actually watched like every episode of the Gilmore girls, like every, every season. Is that wrong? Was that not my, (laughs) I feel real good about that decision. (laughs) Just being honest. So, um, (laughs) so when we do have a decision to make, um, what we want more than anything is peace, clarity, and a nudge in the right direction. So how do we learn to clear the decision-making clutter and chaos? Well, I think that, you know, that practice of doing the next right thing, it comes in handy at the front of a decision and also at the tail end of a decision. Um, But that first sort of, you know, when we recognize, okay, I have this decision to make. And, you know, I hear from, um, podcast listeners and, and people who read the book, the next right thing book a lot, who will tell me how that posture has helped them make decisions from whether or not to, you know, buy a house or change jobs or which school to send their kids to. And oftentimes I'll hear from, you know, college students who are thinking about a, a college major or whether they want to go to a school close to home or far away from home. And, but, but I think that th- there's a very simple rhythm And again, it's not a formula, but it is a rhythm um, of looking, you know, when we look for that peace and clarity, first of all, I think sometimes we can 
really kind of those, we have a, a ill-conceived notion about what we need to make a decision. And we think we need this feeling of peace and of clarity, and then we'll decide. But in fact, in my experience and from people who I've spoken with, I've discovered a lot of times that peace and clarity comes on the other side of the decision. And in fact, you have to move forward into uh, some of the fog just with one next mm-hmm. right thing. Um, and, and then the peace emerges and the clarity comes, but it often, I think the first movement really of that rhythm that I've discovered has helped me a lot, um, is to number one, begin to clear the clutter in my own mind. And that simply comes in the way of silence of getting silent and still, um, in a room by myself, if I can, and that can be literally five minutes can make a huge difference. And so that kind of first silencing is kind of the first step for me. And then the second thing that I do is I begin to a practice of really naming the unnamed things. And what I mean by that is simply um, recognizing kind of how I feel about a thing, but then not just letting that be the thing that makes all the decisions, but actually naming, okay, I'm feeling angry. But I wonder why I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling anxious, but why is that? And being able to put that in words, because I think sometimes I allow my um, lack of clarity or the fogginess or the fear or whatever to be the determining factor for moving forward. But in fact, if I take the time to name, you know, specifically where that's coming from, it can help me realize like, oh, maybe it has nothing to do with a decision at all. And I've kind of clouded those things. So taking the time to name some of those unnamed things has really helped. And then from that, finally, you know, aside from doing the next right thing, I think this practice of really paying attention to, okay, what is my decision? I think so many times we try to make, or let me speak for myself. I try to make a decision, but really there's no decision to make yet. I just have the, I don't like the lack of clarity of the future. And so I feel like, oh, I'm, oh, so much decision fatigue and oh, I'm so overwhelmed and I have to make all these choices. But when I sit down and get still and begin to name things, I realize, actually, I can't even put into an English sentence what decision I have to make. And if I can't state my decision clearly, then I won't make a clear decision. And so that practice right there, those three movements, um, can really be so clarifying when it comes to making decisions and doing the next wow. right thing. So much inter, you know, introspection that we have to do. Um, but you know, one of the things I think that that is a hang up for myself is that I'm, I'm fearful of choosing wrong. You know, like we don't want to go down the wrong path. So, how do you suggest that we quiet those fears? It's a great question. And I think this really is the root of a lot of people's, um, you know, when people say, well, you know, I don't really, I don't really know what I want, or I'm not sure what to do next. Or I think all of that lack of clarity and that chronic hesitation that a lot of us struggle with, really your question here is the root of it is that we're just afraid Mm. we're going to do it wrong. We're going to choose wrong. We're going to make a big mistake and we're going to have all these regrets. And I think that that word wrong is such an interesting um, uh, word because it really paints this, it paints life kind of in a black and white place where, well, either we're going to do things right or we're going to do things wrong. And in my experience in life with God, you know, I, I just think he's 
I mean, I hate to say this because it sounds scary to say, but I do think he's maybe less interested in the decisions that we make than the person who Mm. we are becoming. And the decisions and choices um, that we make, if we choose quote unquote wrong, or we do something that we later regret, that's all a part of the story that our lives are telling. And he's Mm. with us in all of it. And so relieving the pressure of, of thinking that, you know, my choices are somehow, um, you know, inevitably going to, to lead me down a path that I'm forever going to regret. I just don't think any choice is quite that permanent, especially as we make them, um, in prayer and in conversation with people who, who love us and who know us and paying attention to, you know, our deepest desires in the presence of God, as we access those. Um, and then we, all we can do is our next right thing. And I just want to point out that, um, yes, the word right is in there, but I think that's less the focus. I think really the hopeful word is Mm. the word next. It's just, you might not be able to know what the next 10 things are, but we can choose to do and and to move in just one next direction. You know, I was just thinking about just human nature and how we we just want to see the full picture. It's like, God, show me beginning to end, and, you know, but he just, that's just not the way it, yep. this is not the way it works. But I think I also have a tendency and maybe the listeners do as well. That we, when we do finally make a decision, whatever that may be, then we start to like, Oh, have like a little bit of regret or we start to second guess. So how do we, how do we move past that? What a, what a great question. I feel like if I had a really good answer for that, I would be like a millionaire. <laughs> I would be like, yeah, that's great. But I do think that there are, you know, some things to remember. And a big part of it is just knowing that, again, that it's not so much about um, the decisions that I make, but it's about the person I'm becoming. And as I allow um, myself to remember that um, and that, that he is with me no matter what, um, that that can be a really hopeful perspective. Um, and I also think about sometimes we feel like in life that we travel down a road, a certain road. And I know that many people have really difficult stories and life experiences. And some of those stories and experiences are a result of something that had nothing to do with us. And, And they were choices that other people made that we now suffer the consequences of. But other times we have made choices ourselves that we suffer the consequences of. And maybe we aren't, you know, we aren't necessarily making those same choices now, but maybe we are living with the consequence of those choices. And there can be a great fear that, oh, no, you know, now I don't have confidence to to make another choice for my kids or for my marriage or for these friendships again because of how it went back then. And that can be a really powerful um, discouragement for lack of a better word, it means a stronger word than that I'm looking for, but it can feel hopeless, let's say. Um, But I do think there's great beauty in remembering that though we may have traveled across a lot of ungracious territory in our life, that it can feel like we have to turn around and retrace our steps um, and find our way back to the road of of hope and of truth and beauty. But in fact, um, God's promise to us is that he has gone with us. And so as we turn, it's really just one movement. It's one turn. And there he is. We don't have to go and travel back all over that, all that ungracious territory. We just traveled to find him again. But in fact, he has gone with us and he is beside us. And 
it's just that one movement of repentance, of turning to him um, and trusting then that he's with us and that, okay, now what is my next right thing? That there's always an opportunity to turn our face towards him and to trust him as we move forward into our next yeah, right thing. And, I, and, you know, as you're saying, like he will never leave us or forsake us. So regardless of which way we turn, he will never. So, yeah. Um. So, okay. So it's sort of, as you're talking, I'm also thinking about, you're saying who we're becoming. And I'm also thinking about the heart behind our decisions. Like what are our motives? What are, and so because of the heart behind this podcast, I'm interested to hear where love comes into the play in our decision-making. What a beautiful question. And, you know, I'll answer it maybe a little bit differently than what might, might first come to mind. But I think that this idea of love, you know, we learn and we know that God is love. And I do believe that so much of our decision-making, whether it's the fear of decision-making or our apathy towards it, or maybe some of us um, are quick to make decisions and then we regret them later. Like I think there's, I tend to talk from the side of um, hesitation or second guessing or overthinking, but there's this whole other group of people who probably make rash decisions or they move too quickly to, to, uh, to a decision. And they think about it later, right? After the fact, but either way, I think no matter what our tendency is in decision-making, um, a lot of our decisions really come down to the heart of, um, am I being led by love or am I being pushed Mm -hmm. by fear? Some of us, when we're afraid, we tend to hesitate and we second guess, but others of us, when we're afraid, we barrel through, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to look at what might, what the consequences might be. And so fear can manifest itself in many different ways. Sometimes it looks like, um, sometimes it it can look like overexcitement. Sometimes it can look like, um, overexamining. Um, there's myriad of ways that fear can show up, but I think that, um, and, and it could look very, it could look the same as love on the outside. You know, I think that we don't always know what someone's motive is, right. Just by looking, but, but we can know for, for our own selves. And so I think that that is one piece of it is that asking myself a question, if I'm struggling with a decision is in this decision, am I being led by love or am I allowing fear to do what fear does best, which is push me around. And, and a lot of it too, to trace it back one more step so much of our decision-making um, really comes down to what, what do I really and truly believe about God? Do I believe he's for me or do I believe he is standing in the corner of the room with his arms crossed, tapping his foot and waiting to see if I'm going to, to get it right. And, and I think if we got real honest with ourselves, Dallas Willard says that we always live what we believe. We just don't always live what we mm. profess we believe. And so if you want to really know, what do you believe about God? Pay attention to the decisions that you're making, because th- then I think we can really um, learn a lot about my posture towards my own life reflects perhaps how I believe God's posture is toward me. Cause if I think that he is, you know, a, a trickster, a cosmic <laughs> trickster who is, you know, asking me to pick a number between one and 10. And he's just kind of waiting to see if I get it right. I'm going to be a lot less free um, in my decisions because I'm going to be afraid, man, I only have a one out of 10 chance of getting this thing right. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and bide my time because I don't know how to play this game. And I just think remembering um, 
the God that Jesus knows, the father that Jesus knows, who is loving, who is with us, who never turns his back, who always sets the table for us in the presence of our enemies and recognizing that um, he, he is one who dwells within us and we don't have to be afraid. But listen, it takes a lifetime sometimes to really learn that, right? Yeah. Deep in our core. Yeah. You know, Emily, I don't know if you know this, but my um, sort of tagline, so to speak, is lead with love. And so as you were just saying that, I'm like, uh, lead by, led by love. You know, I don't know. That just is so, oh, it's so good, Emily. That just speaks to my heart so much. So, um, okay. So moving on to something else. Um about that, you know, you, you, you first started your blog in 2006. And so then like one next right thing after another led you to become a <laughs> Wall Street Journal bestselling author, podcast host, and founder of Hope Writers. And I'm actually a member of this community, this group, and I love it. So would you tell listeners about why you felt led to start this community? Oh, it's so, it's one of those things I wish I could tell you like, well, I had this dream of the night and we just, we just started this community, you know, and it was just so clear, but it wasn't ever, ever clear. And in fact, it's still becoming more clear, but essentially, um, you know, Hope Writers is the community of writers and the training community that I wish I had 10 years ago when I wrote my first book. When I wrote my first book, I didn't really know any authors personally. Um, I didn't know what in the world a book proposal was, I didn't, certainly didn't know how to write one. And I really didn't know who to ask um, to, to find out about it. I will say Lisa Turkhurst was someone who I knew um, not well, but I, I knew her through some, you know, mutual friends. And so she was a kind encouragement to me um, a de- over a decade ago when I was writing my first book proposal. But other than her, I just didn't know that many authors who had done this. And so it was sort of felt like walking in the dark. Um, and since then, you know, that was five books ago and 10 years ago, um, I've learned a lot. And I've also discovered just some commonalities around, among writers and things that we, reasons why we quit and reasons why we keep on going. And so Hope Writers, really, we started, it's been mm, almost five years now, four or so, four and a half years ago. Um, and it really just kind of started out because um, my dad and sister and I, we had a, a little family membership community that we did that wasn't for writers. It was just for anybody. Um, and we, it was kind of an online ongoing monthly thing that we did together to just kind of provide encouragement. And, you know, it wasn't real clear who it was for or what it was for. It was just something fun we did as a family together. But after about a year and a half, it kind of ran its course and we were sort of done. Um, but that's when we met our friend, Brian Dixon, um, who was like, Hey, you know, rather than close up shop here, you should survey your members and let's just see who they are, what they're about. And we discovered that over half of our members of our little family community that we had wanted to write a book. They were writers in some way, or they wanted to write in some way. And we were like, Ooh, because what I realized at that time, Rachel, was that I was getting, this was maybe, I was maybe two or three books into it, into the writing life. And I was getting so many emails, so many questions from writers asking me about the writing life and publishing and craft and all this stuff. And I just didn't have the bandwidth to answer them anymore. I started writing about writing on my blog some and recognized that most of my blog readers didn't care. <laughs> like there were some writers who read my blog, but they, but they, that was not the mass, vast majority. And so the idea that I could maybe have a place to 
both answer the questions that people were asking and, you know, have this kind of outlet for myself to talk about things I love to talk about. Um, it sort of felt like the perfect storm of opportunity. And so we started Hope Writers in fall of 2015. And since then, it's, you know, it kind of started out aimlessly, but with a great big heart and wanting to really help and serve writers. And now it's really grown into this community of writers where we really help writers um, find and follow their own path to sharing their words with a reader. And we do that by teaching them what it means to balance the art of writing with the business of publishing. And so we find that writers often, um, they have a big heart and they have lots of motivation, but they find a lot of the right things to do, but they do them in the wrong order. And that leads to burnout and overwhelm. And so we really made it our job to show writers, okay, here's the path and here's where you are on the path and don't look three steps ahead, just do your next right thing. You know, we're doing that here in Hope Writers as well. Um, that, you know, you don't have to do all the things you just have to find and follow your own path to sharing your words. And we've seen writers just do some really beautiful work over the past several years. You know, now that we've been in business for a while, you know, a lot of our writers are writing books and getting agents and they're creating membership sites and they're selling courses. And so it's been really fun to see. Um, and I say all of that, but another thing, a lot of our writers are just meeting other writers and finding community, um, especially for writers who live in places where they do not know anyone else in their own community who gets what they do. And that's been a huge um, gift to have this online writing community that they yeah, can connect yeah. with whenever. Well, you know, one of the words, I guess, I like both words, hope and writing. <laughs> but but the word <laughs> hope, I'd like you to, to touch on that. How would you encourage the Woman Listening Day to, I guess, first offer hope and then also hold on to hope in her writing, but also just in life in general? Oh, man, we sure yes, need a lot of hope yes. right now, don't we? It is... There is a lot of, of pain and of fear and anxiety floating around the air right now. And we need hope-filled words more than ever before. And I guess I would just say, you know, that word, what a beautiful word it is. And, you know, when we think about writers, for example, um, we have a few core values in Hope Writers. And one of them, one of our core values, shock of all shocks, is <laughs> hope-filled words. <laughs> um, hope-filled worldview. We really... Um, you know, we are for all writers of hope. If you have words of hope, you're welcome at our table. Um, but there's also, because that also kind of rules out, you know, we just, we just don't have cynical rants in our community. That's just not really, you know, not to say that we wouldn't want to have um, informed conversations and maybe even people have, you know, different stances they take on different things. I mean, of course, we hope doesn't mean we all always agree, but moving through the world, um, knowing that solutions are possible and that we are better together than we are apart is a really powerful message and a really powerful posture. Um, and so I think that's, that's one thing, you know, thinking about um, that word hope. And I would also say when it comes to writing, a lot of times writers, and, and this can be true for anyone who, anyone who has a message to share and they want it to catch Anyone, and that could be teachers, um, any kind of leader, writers, of course, are included in that, speakers. But I would say that, you know, I really talk about this um, kind of a trifecta of 
of postures that I think we need. One is the first is frustration. Honestly, <laughs> yes, I'm starting with frustration. I think that the best messages, the most powerful things that we write or that we speak, say, teach, lead people in starts with something that really frustrates us. So if you're, if you're curious about what makes you come alive, ask yourself, Mm -hmm. what makes me angry? Um, Start there, but you can't end there because if you end there, um, people might not listen (laughs) to you for very long, but you have to move into the passion. So that's the second one, which is what am I really passionate about? What could I talk about forever? Um, where can I lead people? And I, I'm not going to get bored with it. So there's that frustration and passion. Um, but if you only have those two things, um, that is going to lead to some cynicism because you're being fueled by anger and you're real passionate about it. Um, but that right there is like, that's what happens a lot on the internet. We see a lot of passionate yeah, yeah. Um, anger, yeah. <laughs> passionate frustration. Um but that doesn't really take us anywhere. And so that third piece is that hopeful piece. And I would encourage any writer or leader um, to really analyze, okay, where's my frustration? Yes. What am I, am I passionate enough about that thing to keep talking about it for a really long time, but not until I can articulate the hope because that's that those three things together. Now that is a powerful, um, a powerful message. And I, I, I think that sometimes what I see happen is that writers start writing publicly. I would say, write Always mm-hmm. don't ever yeah. not write, always write, but maybe don't always share it until you have been able till you can maybe articulate all those three things, because until you can articulate the hope, where's the gift for the reader? What's the reader going to grab onto? Where are you taking us? Um, and so I think those three things are really important. And, and with hope kind of being the, the binding factor. That is such good advice. And that is the, the fact that you share things like that, that you have learned and you're not just going to be like stingy and hoard all your good knowledge. That, I mean, I'm being serious because you could, <laughs> you totally could. You could say, I've learned this, but I'm going to keep it to myself, but, but you haven't. And that's what I admire so much about you and this group. So I guess as, as writers and just women in general, how can we choose connection and community and supporting one another over comparison? And like, I don't know, cause we can, we can, we can choose either or like jealousy or cheerleading. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. We, there is no room for comparison yeah. at the writing table. There just isn't. And, and I think until we really embrace that and know that um, we can only just go so far. I think so. I think it's the same way for, um, when we see the world as one of scarcity, it's just going to be almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Is that the word that we say? Like, if you think there's not enough, then mm-hmm. it begins to feel like there's not enough. Um, but that's not really a truth. Mm-hmm. That's just our experience. And so um, I think it was Shauna Nequist who said, when you can either compare or connect, mm-hmm. but you cannot do both. And man, that's the truth in my experience. And so in Hope Writers, but also I hope in any work that I do, um, I always, and listen, it doesn't always feel true, but I always try to remember that that is a core value of mine and a core value of Hope Writers is this community aspect of we are better together than we are apart. And when one, um, when one succeeds, it does not mean there's less success available to the rest of us. It actually mm. is good for all of us um, because, again, 
this is a message of hope and we want hope to spread. So when hope spreads in at your corner of the world, it's only good for the whole world um, that I don't have to worry about something being taken away for me. There's room at the table and there's yeah. enough. Yeah. To God go is a God of abundance. Yeah. So you have discovered that writers quit for similar reasons and maybe it's not just writers, but in, you know, just we quit <laughs> sometimes just in life. So what um, similarities have you identified that lead us to give up too soon? Listen, we could talk about this <laughs> yeah. the whole time. Um, and I did touch on it a second ago, which is writers quit when they're um, trying to do all the right things, but in all the wrong order. And quite frankly, a lot of times that's like they um, want to write a book, but then they get overwhelmed because they think, well, I have to grow my Instagram platform to 10 million at the same time that I'm trying to write a book at the same time. I'm trying. And so they just try to do a lot of things at once rather than kind of doing just the next right thing really well. Um, so I think that's one thing practically, but, but honestly, I really believe, and this is just not in writing, this is in any creative work, but maybe even work that's not necessarily considered, you know, in the creative, well, though, listen, I think all work's <laughs> creative. So let me just take that back. Um, but, you know, yeah. traditionally the, you know, maybe a work that doesn't, isn't considered that way, but um, I think it's so mindset uh, related. And I think people quit when we um, believe the voice in our head that is asking the question, who do you think you are? That whole, that whole conversation around who do you think you are to and whatever, when people quit, they have um, not had a good answer to that question. Who do I think I am? Well, I don't, I'm not, you're right. I'm nobody. I'm, I, who am I to do this? Who, who am I to, you know, I don't have what it takes. Um, that is not unique right. to you. <laughs> that is the mantra that we all have here in our heads. And so I think the sooner that we can, um, realize that we are not the exception, uh, that we are not the only ones for whom that, that, who do you think you are question can't be answered. Um, the, the better off we'll be. And, and I think secondly, to remember who do I think I am? Well, yeah. Who am I? I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. James Bryan Smith said that I've never forgotten it. I'll never forget it. But I think when we have that voice that seems to haunt us in our minds and the voice is intended to do harm, we can instead choose to turn and to answer that voice with truth, remembering that we are ones in whom Christ dwells and we have something beautiful to share. And I have to remind myself that every day. It's not like we remember it and learn it once yeah. and then we're done. Um, this is an ongoing lifestyle. And I think it ties back into remembering, let's just do our next right thing mm -hmm. in love. Yeah, just shifting that narrative, those, those taking every thought captive and then renewing our minds. And, and I think you're right. I think it is a daily thing. Um, and, the, and then one of the reasons when I sort of reflect back on my life, I think sometimes I have quit because it didn't um, immediately happen when I thought it would, or as quickly as I thought it would. So, um, I think this applies to just, you know, we have these timelines and expectations, um, in life, but also in our writing. So how do we learn to sort of go at our own pace or even allow God to set the pace? I, it's an interesting question. Cause I think I would ask a question back to you. And that is that when you say that it didn't happen as quickly as I thought it would, my question is mm -hmm. what didn't happen? Yeah. Oh yeah. 
because I think how we answer that question really indicates how we define success. And again, sometimes I think that 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 is really the root of the question is, well, how am I defining if what I'm doing matters or counts? And 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 that is something that can really, like you said, I think that is why a lot of people quit is because our definition of success is one that could be beyond our ability to control. And then we will always be frustrated. Yeah, and as our definition of success, um, God's definition is probably much different than ours. Yeah. You sort of alluded to this er- earlier about getting the, as writers, getting the steps sort of um, mixed up and doing things all together instead of in the right order. So you all have identified six writing stages. So would you briefly touch on each one and maybe explain why it's so important to determine your stage? Absolutely. Well, you know, this is something that came about the six stage writer path. We call it the hope writer path. Um, It came about after watching, learning and hearing from a lot of writers over several years. So it's not like we created a path and then we're telling people to follow it. It's kind of like we've observed and learned and then discovered, oh, this is kind of this is kind of the path. Um, But the first stage is just the writer. And that is that, you know what, if you want to be a writer, if you have writing in your bones, or even if you just have something to share, and you maybe don't think you're a writer, you're in stage one, you're you're on that at the beginning, which is, I think I have something to say, and I want to learn how to say it. And that's kind of that first stage of recognizing that um, I'm a writer, and I want to maybe begin to develop. So what we encourage people to do in that stage is to really begin to develop their writing voice, their writing habits to actually write every day. (laughs) Imagine that. And that can be a hard thing. Sometimes that's where people just stay for a really long time is in that. And there's absolutely not one single thing wrong with that. That's a beautiful um, place to be. And so that stage one is really um, just kind of laying the foundation for a writing life and recognizing that, you know, I'm not behind. I'm just learning the tools and tips for this basic, um, you know, for what might come next. And I think we don't spend enough time there in stage one. Sometimes we try to rush to where is the stage yeah, where I right. get published, you know, and we're kind of waiting for that, but there is a lot of beautiful work happening. And let me tell you too, we see this path as really a circle. And so I'm always going back to stage one and always, you know, what are my routines of writing? How am I writing every day? Um, so that's stage one, And we call that stage, the writer stage two is the hostess. And really that is a stage that's really defined by, okay, here is where you're going to be a, begin to identify who your reader is. So in stage one, you might not be sharing your words with anyone. You're just learning your voice. Stage two, you're beginning to recognize, I would like to identify who my reader is and maybe even start an email list to serve that reader and um, just kind of understand who is it is that's reading my writing or who would I like to have reading my writing. So that's stage two. And then stage three is the entrepreneur. Um, and I believe that every writer who wants to do this for work is an entrepreneur, even if you um, are writing for ministry, whether you are just a one woman show, um, whether you have a team of people around you, um, it's imperative that as writers, we see our work as a business. Um, Even if, again, like I said, even if it's a nonprofit, even if it's ministry related, um, I think just there are things about this work that we do that it's just so important for us to um, recognize, okay, what are some things I need to have in place to do this for the long haul? So the entrepreneur is kind of where you begin to realize 
you know, what it looks like to handle some criticism or how you can serve a reader and make some money or how you can serve a reader and grow your email list so that you can do that work forever. And then stage four is the author. And that's where um, in the Hope Writer Library, our library is um, for our members is really defined by these stages. And so in the library, stage four is the author. And that's where a lot of our training is for people who do want to be either traditionally published or self-published or a hybrid of both. Um, so that's kind of that author stage. Again, not every writer wants to write a book necessarily, but if you do want to write a book, we recommend you not do that until you've moved mm -hmm. through stages one through three. Um, and then that was four. And then stage five is the marketer. And again, that's just kind of what does it look like to share my words with a reader? And then stage um that's stage five. And then stage six is the essentialist. And that's really where maybe you have a book published. Maybe you have multiple streams of revenue. Maybe you have several different things going on where maybe you have a couple people who are working for you or a whole team um, and really beginning to learn how to say no to things that look like great opportunities, but might actually be distracting you from your calling and from the work that you're called to do. And so that's kind of a six stage path. But like I said, it is really kind of a circle. And I'm constantly, um, you know, I would say technically I would be in stage six, the essentialist, but I'm constantly going back to redefine and hone in who is my reader from stage two and remembering things I learned in stage three, which is the entrepreneur. Okay, now I, I'd like to create something new for my readers. What is that going to look like? And what's the best way to position that? So it is kind of a fluid thing, but it does give people an idea of what comes next and what can wait. And if you're curious about where you are on the writing path, we have a free quiz. So it's very quick. It's kind of short, silly, but yeah, you can, it yeah, does give you a pretty yeah, accurate yeah. idea of where you are. And that's at hopewriters.com. Okay. Wow. And quiz. I'll include that in the show notes. Um, but you know, something else that you all do, which I, I love as well, is each Tuesday, your team offers a teaching from editors and agents and authors and, and marketing professionals. And this is just such a terrific resource that you, <laughs> and I sort of giggled because one of your first books, you've got to think for Tuesdays, right? <laughs> so <laughs> That's right. you actually call yourself a curious listener, which I suppose I'm the same because I love listening to my guests each week and gleaning from the wisdom that they share. So what do you love most about interacting with these Tuesday teachers? It, it oh, is. it's so it fun, is. right? I mean, I, I do. I sit down every week. I sit down with someone in the industry, whether it's an author. A lot of times it's an author, but sometimes there's an editor, an agent, a marketing professional, an Instagram guru, just somebody who, you know, can help us move through these stages and make progress in our writing life. And, um, you know, right now I am the face of those Tuesday teachings. I don't know if it'll always be that way, but for now that's kind of part of my work in Hope Writers is, you know, getting these interviews and then sitting down with these, um, a lot of times friends, but sometimes, you know, new friends, people I'm just meeting. And I just love uh, learning from them and, and hearing, I think this is something that's been really fun to, to learn is that as I ask questions and hear from them and they all have different experiences, stories, um, and different things that they're good at, but some commonalities yeah. always emerge. And I think that's something that I think is really beautiful and encouraging for the writers because almost always, um, people talk about kind of the serendipitous nature of this work that, you know, they just had a conversation with this person or they happened to be at this place at a time when they got to meet another person. So a lot of times it's, um, 
some things that happened when they were just doing their next right thing. And then they had this conversation or this opportunity and they never could have planned it. Right. It's not like I had this five year plan and then I decide it just doesn't work that way. And it's that way across the board. Um, but they were in places and positioned themselves to be open and ready and they were preparing and they were, you know, doing their work. But when it comes to like uh, some of these opportunities, it's just not things that they planned. And I think the other piece is always learning and hearing from people how um, how little anyone knows what they're doing. <laughs> I just think that, you know, you think, oh, we're going to have this, you know, so-and-so on. And we're going to mm-hmm. learn so much. And we do learn so much. But like I said, it's usually we're learning the humanity mm-hmm. behind the professionalism. And yes, how people take their work as pros and like the steps that they take to be pro but also how they've done stuff that hasn't worked at all that none of us knew about mm. because it didn't work. Yeah. So we never heard about it, but we get to hear about some of that stuff behind the scenes. And I think that's the most fun mm, part about the humanity and the serendipity. Oh, that, I love that. I love that. Yep. So another great aspect of Hope Writers um, is these things called Hope Circles. So would you tell us about these circles? And Emily, I'm interested. Are, are you a part of one? <laughs> I love that. Well, first of all, so Hope Circles, so Hope Writers, we have over 3,000 members right now in our writing community, Mm -hmm. and that is a lot of writers. And we're growing, you know, we open three times a year, and so we're always growing our membership. But that can be intimidating for a new member to be like, what? How can I possibly make friends in a room full of 3,000 people? (laughs) Like a mega church, yeah, online. And so what we've discovered is... um, to make mm-hmm. a big room small, it really helps to have a group of five to eight other writers who you can connect with regularly. So the way we have found works best, and I will say I'm not the expert in Hope Circles, our community manager, Maeve, and um, Gary, who's our director of community, they really are the genius behind um, Hope Circles. But essentially, they are member-run, member-initiated um, uh, circles where they basically, you know, like if, if you're a hope writer and you're writing a book proposal or you have little kids at home and you're trying to create a writing routine and you want other friends to do that with, you raise your hand in, the, in our Facebook group and you you basically say that and you create your own hope circle. And we have, you know, many circles who, that have started and usually they're about five to eight writers and they maybe go for four to six weeks, usually there's a start and an end time and you can always renew and do it after, but where they have a goal, a little goal together, it's really working side by side. It's not like, you know, we provide the training in the library for you to learn and all that, but hope circles are more relational and kind of holding each other accountable for your different writing goals or just a place to know that you have somebody to talk to or ask your questions with and learn together. So that's really what the hope circles are. Um, And then as far as if I'm in one, I am not in a hope writer hope circle. Um, However, I do have circles of people outside of hope writers um, who I've been doing this with for years because it's so important to this work that we have um, other women and men, but other Mind women, <laughs> minor all women, who can, um, who we can just bounce mm-hmm. ideas off of and, you know, just kind of learn from. And that's been so important for me. So we're thrilled to be able to ha- offer a space for writers to find one another mm, to create yeah. a hope circle. Well, so can you answer sort of some common questions, I guess, like, is it only for faith-based writers? Is it only for women? Is hope writers for only nonfiction writers? Is there homework? And, and maybe who 
Pope writers is not for. I know that's a mouthful, but you know, like some of the people listening that may think, okay, I want to join this, but you know, can you answer some of those questions for us? Sure. Yeah. So it's not just for women, but I'd say 98% of our members are women. So (laughs) take that for what you will, but we do have a few men, two of our co-founders are men. So that's Mm -hmm. something to, you know, (laughs) there's other guys around. Um, But And then the other piece is we do also have a lot of faith-based writers. Um, I would say if you think about that, you know, hope writers tends to attract people who put their hope, they find their hope in their faith. And so it makes sense that they would be attracted to hope writers. But I will say that we do have, you know, people from all walks of life. And definitely it's not just for um, people of faith or, or, and it doesn't have to be just for people who share our faith. I would say that we have you know, lots of different um, faith backgrounds represented, but the, the teaching and training that's offered in Hope Writers can be hopefully applied across the board, whether or not you write for, you know, write faith-based work or don't. We have lots of writers who maybe have their own personal faith, but their writing is not, you know, faith-based. They're writing for, you know, cooking or they're writing, you know, for parenting or whatever. And it's not necessarily from a faith perspective. Um, So that's definitely something we have. I would say majority of our um, training is nonfiction writers, but for nonfiction writing, however, again, we have fiction writers, poets, we even have some songwriters and and hope writers. Um, We have people who are writing Bible study, people who are writing curriculum. And, and here's where, you know, it's like, well, are you just for this type and whatever? And I think that the, the big question is we are really for any writer who wants to pivot from writing their words in their journal, um, in, in their office or putting their words in their drawer on their bedside. They want to pivot from that life to writing for an actual reader. And it doesn't matter what you are writing for them. If you want your words to be read, um, hope writers can help you. Um, and, and you will, you know, with over 3000 writers, you're going to find other writers who are writing in your same genre. And I would say that, um, one, one question we also get a lot is, uh, oh, and PS also for children's right. People who write mm-hmm. for children. That's another yeah. one that people ask about a lot. Um, and we definitely have a lot of writers who are writing for children. Um, but having said all that, another question is people will get is, you know, well, my, what about my spouse? Like my, my spouse isn't really on board or this is a monthly recurring payment. You know, I don't know. How does that work? And I would say that for one thing, um, we, my biggest advice to people is um, talk to your person about your writing dream. Because if you just spring on a spouse and say, I want to join this writing community and they've never heard that you have writing in your bones, then that's going to be surprising to them and they might not get on board. But um, what a gift to your family if you can articulate your deepest desires and this word that you want to spread. And I would say that um, once, once you do that, you might be surprised at the conversations that come from that. And then secondly, I've created a short video on our Hope Writers um, page where you go to join. It's in the FAQ section that I talk directly to your spouse because we've gotten this question so many times that I try to answer a lot of the questions that spouses have. Um, and that's in the FAQ section. You can, and that's not for you, that's for your spouse. So if anybody's like, I would like to join Hope Writers, but my husband or my wife isn't going to understand, I have a video for that person that they can watch. Um, so I think those are some questions. And I, and I would also just say that um, 
I know a lot of times that that the money piece is a factor, but if you're serious about your writing, um, yes, now might not be the time for you to join. However, um, I will say that when it comes to looking at what it costs to go to a writing conference versus what it costs to be a hope writer, Mm -hmm. man, no comparison. And we're available 24 seven. You don't have to leave your home, which these days is Mm -hmm. pretty important to be able to have that. You know, actually just a really quick side note. When I first, I have a friend that was a member of hope writers before I was, and I had a question about what was a hook. And she said, well, let me ask my hope writers group. And literally she, after I texted her, she texted or put it on the Facebook feed of hope writers. Immediately, Brian Dixon responded back and gave this formula of what a hook is. And then she then sent it back to me within like a five minute. And she was like, this community is amazing. And so it was that kind of interaction, that kind of help and accountability that I've found. And so I just want the listeners to know it, it really has been an impactful um, to me in more ways than that. But that is why I first joined. It's like, gosh, they're, you know, <laughs> they're actually attentive, you know. <laughs> um, and so I will. I, that, yeah. that's when I first joined. And it's it's been confirmed over this past, I guess, year and a half for me. Um, so if, if the woman listening is interested in joining, tell us about when um, enrollment is open. Um, it, it's three times a year, right? Yep. We're open three times a year and we are going to open up May. I think open enrollment starts May 18th and we're open just for about five days. So the 18th through the 22nd, I think that would be, and then we'll close until the fall. And so usually it's, it's usually spring, fall, and then, you know, the beginning of the year tends to be when we do our open enrollment. Um, And people often say, well, I'll just wait till the next time. And, and our answer to that is always like, sure, you could do that, but imagine the progress you could make Mm -hmm if you start now. And that's always the, you know, that's kind of the catalyst. And I would say whether or not you join Hope Writers, man, I just hope that we need writers to write. And, you know, we really love linking arms with writers and helping get your words into the hands of a reader. Um, And we call ourselves the kindest place for writers on the internet. And I think that's true. Um, So we would love to have you with us, you know, when doors open, but more than anything, I just hope that you. Well, so Emily, this season, I'm asking all of my guests who has loved them well. So is there someone who first comes to mind for you and how have they loved you well? Oh yeah. My husband, John loves me so well. And that feels like, you know, cliche answer, but man, I tell you what, sometimes I look at myself Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm the worst. (laughs) Like. (laughs) I just would not want to be married to me right now, but, um, he has just continued to show me the love of God over and over again in ways that I just (laughs) cannot even, (laughs) it's just, it's, you know, I, I just don't even know if I have words for it. So I'm so grateful, um, for his love and posture towards me of support. And, and speaking of the, the writing piece, I would say, that used to be some of our biggest fights back years and years ago was because I would want time to write, but I'd never articulated how, why it was important. And so he didn't understand, but that wasn't really his fault. That was on me for not voicing that, but now times have changed. And I would say he is my biggest cheerleader, my biggest support. And I would not have imagined that to be the case back then. But now that I have language, now that we have a history of talking through and he's listened and received that because it could, he could have just as easily been like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't get it, you know, and turned around. But once he heard 
what that meant to me, man, that has made all the difference. And it's been such a, um, it's been such an encouragement and a loving mm-hmm. posture towards me. I'm so well, grateful. Well, to personalize this question even more for you, how do you think we can love writers well? And then if you'd follow that up with, as writers, how can we love our readers well? What a good question. Um, I think loving writers well um, is, I'll, I'll make it real practical. Um, don't call their work a thing. Don't, don't refer to a writer's work as something that's small or insignificant um, because a writer has poured a lot into their work. And so, you know, well, what's that Bible study thing you're working on? Or what's, are you doing like some kind of book thing? That type of language to a writer can be devastating. So I'd say loving a writer well is to really respect their words um, and to, to hold them in high regard, even if they're not for you, you know, that doesn't matter. It's just, this is the work that someone's putting into the world. On the flip side, I'd say, how can writers love their readers? I would say um, almost the opposite advice to the writer is um, don't take yourself so seriously Mm. that you get in your own way so that you are unable to serve your reader. Um, So, you know, I think that always knowing that this is not about you. This is not about, you know, uh, you sharing your heart with the world. This is about how can I serve my reader in a way that's going to bring hope into her life. Um, I think that that's the best way that we can love our readers well Mm -hmm. is to really keep them. Well, as we get ready to close, I'd love for you to share how we can keep in contact with you and then also how we can get more information about Hope Writers. Sure. Well, you can find me at emilypfreeman.com. And then I'm, you know, Emily P. Freeman at all the places, Instagram. Um, I think Facebook is Emily P. Freeman author. And then the next right thing podcast, we have new episodes. Um, I say we, <laughs> it's really just me. <laughs> it's me. I have a guy who helps me edit and, and mm-hmm. my friend, you know, my social media, Leah, she helps me um, get it all out mm-hmm. there, but yeah, it's just my so voice good. on the podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. But every Tuesday, new episodes of the next right thing podcast um transcripts are always available at the next right thing podcast.com for every episode um and then as far as hope writers you know you can learn more about hope writers at hopewriters.com we're also hope writers on instagram and um, other places all around i think twitter is the hope writers um but yeah open enrollment if if we're not open there's always a place where you can add your name to the waitlist so that you will be um get an email when we do open um and you can always take that quiz to see where you are on the hope writer path at hope writers okay emily so what is your next right thing um i'm gonna (laughs) reheat my coffee that is my next right thing Oh, yeah. we get real practical. I love, with I love it. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being in my guest today and for encouraging us in our writing journeys and in life in general to simply do the next right thing. God bless you, friend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode with Emily P. Freeman. I hope that you have gained some clarity in your own decision making and that you now know what is your next right thing. Y'all, thank you so much for your grace that you extended in this episode. I am so thankful that you um, hung around to listen to the very end. If you're interested in today's show notes, you can head on over to at Rachel Adams Author on Instagram or on Facebook. And you can also have them sent directly to your inbox by going to Rachel K 
kayadams.com. I'd also be honored if you would take the time to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening platform. That would mean so much to me. Next week is my guest, Lisa Apello. Lisa is going to be talking about grief. She lost her husband of 25 years, and now she is a single mom of seven. And so she's talking about all the good and the bad and the in-between and how she has still found through it all that God is faithful and true. So I hope that you will tune in again next week. I hope you have a terrific week until then. And as always, remember to lead with love.